Good morning, everybody on Education Monsters. I'm here with my friend Darren. He lives in Lincoln, Nebraska. So he got his bachelor's in physics, and then he worked as a NASA controller. Afterwards, he got his master's in physics as well. And he's mostly worked as a technician, an instrumental technician. He's also an amazing banjo player. And he's worked as a research associate at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station in Antarctica. And then he went on to become a station technician at NOAA's Climate Observatory in Alaska. So hello, welcome to you. Hi, glad to be here. I'm very glad you're here too. So you're one of the only people in the world that I know who's been to Antarctica to begin with. So how about you tell us what was the experience? Uh, that I mean, it was my career for the most part. I, uh, I had worked other jobs after college principally not knowing quite what I wanted to do with my life. And um, I stumbled across uh, the Antarctic program uh, in another job that I was working. And when I, when I saw it, it hit me pretty suddenly that, oh, this, this is what I want to be doing. You're originally from the East Coast of the United States. So it's pretty fascinating that, I mean, I don't know how to word this question, but I feel like it feels kind of random, but not so random. Well, yes. I mean, at least for me, in terms of the the progression of my life through jobs and schooling and everything, there's been an element of of chance to it for sure. And um, it was an email. I, I was working for a defense contractor after grad school. And this was probably around 1995, 1996, uh, before the internet had really come into its own. And there was a, a corporate network. And this company had a lot of you know, tentacles, a lot of branches that did other things. And one of them was um, uh, doing the logistics and support for the Antarctic program, which is a, a U.S. government-run program, but they let a contract every 10 years to some to a contractor who can provide these basic services. And the company I worked for, one of their other branches had that contract. And so I was going through my email one day and there's this email saying, advertising a job opening for a position down in Antarctica. And, you know, normally I'd see the, I'd see job postings like that all the time. And I'd just delete them. And I saw this and I, I opened it up and read, I was like, oh man, this is, this is the job I've been looking for all my life. So was it the job or was it location? It, it was both, really. So I wound up not getting that particular job. They wanted a person They have these automated weather observatories that they put down all around Antarctica. And they needed somebody that would fly out and service those things uh, on a periodic basis. And I didn't have the qualifications to do that, especially at that time. They wanted an electrical engineer, basically, which I'm not. However, I replied to that email and talked to the guy that had posted the job. And I I sent a resume into them. It was like a subcompany of this contractor based in Colorado. And uh, I guess they passed around my resume because some weeks later, I got a call back from another guy who was looking to fill a job as a research associate at South Pole Station. So I talked to him at some length. And the more he told me, the more excited I got about the possibility of working down there, especially in that particular job. So I sent him an actual job application. Back in those days, it was still a, a paper form that you filled out. 
And uh, I basically got selected as an alternate that year. So this probably was like 1996, I would guess. So the funny thing was I was completely jazzed about, you know, the, the possibility of working down there. And so I applied the next year with really high hopes and I didn't hear a thing back. Oh, so, so you have to apply every every year? Yeah. And, and I kept doing that for four years and it got to the point where I would fill out the application, send it in. Maybe I'd get an acknowledgement card in the mail saying, we got your application, thanks. And, and maybe I wouldn't. And so it got to be this just this regular thing that I did. And um, one year... I sent it in like April and that, that particular year, I'd been working for four years in the job I was in at that time. And I kind of got sick of it and didn't know what I was going to do. I just, so I wanted to take some time off and uh, do a little traveling. So I quit the job and I got in my truck and was driving around the country, basically living in the back of my truck that summer. And um, again, this was before cell phones too. I was calling home and checking in maybe once a week or so with my parents. And I called one week and they said, yeah, we just got a call from somebody at a, at a company called Antarctic Support Associates. And they wanted to talk to you about a job. Well, I had completely forgotten that I'd even sent in the application that year. Anyway, one thing led to another and I wound up getting hired and going down there. Yeah. So if it's a seasonal job, what were you doing for the rest of the year? I think this gets back to a question you had a minute ago. Um, uh, whether, you know, did I want to go down there to go down there or go down there to do that particular job? And, and I wanted to do both things. After that initial rush of excitement, I started researching Antarctica and the Antarctic program. I, you know, devoured everything I could find about it. And I, I learned that, you know, there's a whole society down there. There's uh, all kinds of jobs down there. There's tradespeople, there's dishwashers, electricians, plumbers, scientists, technicians. And I, I did not want to go down there and be a dishwasher. I, nothing against dishwashing, but <laughs> I, I, after I had, I had seen that job and talked to the guy that was hiring for it, I, I wanted that job. There's three stations. The United States has three stations down there. And I, I wanted to work at South Pole Station. I wanted that job and I wanted to win her over. So your question about the seasonality of it, that that first job was a year-round job. You you went down in October and you basically were there until the following October. But then once once you got out, you were basically let go. You were free to do what you wanted, but you weren't employed by that company anymore. And then you had to reapply if you wanted to go back down there. Why couldn't you have a long-term permanent position there? Why does it have to be recycled like every year? There are permanent jobs within that structure you know the the company that has the support contract they they have a permanent staff you know they have an office building and it's in denver and some of those people deploy to antarctica so they they have the job in denver they go down to the ice for the summer season they come back and they're back at work in the office i i guess they can't they can't afford to retain everybody on a permanent basis and so like like you were asking about they rehire a certain number of people to fill the the seasonal um and the, the winter river jobs. Does it have to do with funding? The fact that, yeah. you know, you're based on grants, so therefore you cannot ensure stability? To a degree. So some of the later jobs that I had, which we'll get into, um, those were grant funded jobs. And as a result of that, uh, were much less stable. Uh, the other thing is, there's a certain type of person that can go down there and, and take a big chunk out of their life to do those jobs. And um, that person is somebody who can is flexible enough to be able to uh, take care of themselves when they're not working down there. Uh, 
you like if you have a family or or something like that, you'll have to either find a, a steady job doing something other than that, or uh, find other work for yourself during the off season, which which a lot of people did. There was a, a big group of people that would come down there from Alaska for the summer season. That that would allow them to escape the wintertime in Alaska. They'd work down in Antarctica and then go back home to Alaska and go to work doing some kind of off season work during the summer in Alaska. That's really exciting. Do you feel like it's similar to being an astronaut? You know, when you're away for long periods of time, then your family or your friends have to be loving you from afar. How easy is it to keep in touch with everyone you used to know before? Back then, it was less easy than it is now. At the time, so that we're talking right around uh, the turn of the millennium, the the satellite coverage, so they rely mostly on satellites to uh, communicate with the outside world. And the satellite coverage at that time was, was pretty sketchy. I think one of the satellites that provided a link to the rest of the world could only do so because when it was put in orbit, it was um, wobbly, like it didn't get the right orbit. And so every once in a while, it would come up above the horizon at the South Pole and a link could be established with it. Um, I don't know what things are like down there now uh, in terms of getting information in and out. Um, I assume they've improved, but the satellite window was like for, I don't know, six hours a day, six or eight hours a day but it would shift over the course of the year. And so, you know, you'd get down there in the summertime and the satellite window might be during the day, but then as the year progressed, it would shift. And, you know, for part of the year, it would be in the middle of the night. And so you could queue things up like email and that kind of thing. But as far as surfing the web, if you wanted to do something like that, you had to get up, you know, or be awake when the satellite window was open. So you said that there were three U.S. stations down there. How many countries had stations and how diverse did you think the place was? Somewhat diverse in terms of having an international kind of flavor to it. Although there's not a ton of interaction between stations, uh, Antarctica is pretty big and things are pretty spread out. As it turns out, uh, the Kiwis, the New Zealand has a base that's very close to the main U.S. base, McMurdo. And, and then New Zealand has uh, has a station over the hill from McMurdo. So there's a lot of interaction between the U.S. and, and Kiwi crews that are down there. And then, you know, it, for individual projects due to the, the scientific nature of the work that a lot of the work that goes on down there there at any given time there'll be people of other nationalities on any given station that are there supporting some project so for instance uh, my first year down there uh, some of the equipment was run by some German guys who came down to service it uh, once every summer that was pretty representative there'd always be kind of an international at least a handful of people that that were from outside the united states and is there an understanding that people communicate in english because science is in english uh not necessarily i think it was just because at least you know my experience being in the united states antarctic program and working on american bases you know that was the lingua franca on the american stations and you know anybody that came down there had to you you know, have a passable speaking ability in English just to, to conduct their business. Mm -hmm. What about the ratio between men and women? Uh, very, very favorable for women. Uh, there, it was probably 70% men, 30% women, thereabouts. Interesting. Um, what kind of communication issue did you run into with other stations? Like, did you guys collaborate and were there any misunderstanding due to language? Uh, nothing major. I, you know, my first winter, we had an Egyptian guy who was wintering over for this project. It was like a LIDAR instrument that was looking at, um, I think, ice crystals in the atmosphere or something like that. Anyway, this guy, he was Egyptian. 
description, he was a grad student at um, the University of Illinois, but his English wasn't very good. He he hadn't spent a lot of time in an English-speaking environment. And so there was a little bit of misunderstanding during the winter with him. Over the course of a winter down there, you know, there's a bit of cabin fever that can develop, I, kind of like what a lot of people are experiencing now due to COVID. Um, yeah, so, I was just so, wondering, you know, with this pandemic, like the world should be so peaceful. And I'm wondering if extroverts are suffering the most about it. But do you think in your stations, it was pretty equal between extroverts and introverts? So did you find mostly introvert profiles? I, I was probably even... Although I, yeah, you'd have to ask every individual person, but I, I, there were plenty of people down there that were extroverted um, and plenty that were introverted. I, th I think that if I, I could pick out one distinguishing characteristic, it, it's generally people that are not homebodies, that are have something of a sense of adventure and want to get out into the wider world. Uh, there were tons of people, tons of people that were extremely well-traveled. I mean, even even like the blue collar trades people that went down there, the plumbers and electricians and such, most of them, at least at the South Pole, had uh, an interest in traveling. And that was one nice thing about that job was it, it kind of afforded you a lifestyle while you did it, where you would go down there, you'd work your contract, and then you'd get let out in New Zealand. And after that, you could you could parlay your airline ticket home into ticket to some other place that you could you could travel to on the way home. Or some people kept going around the world and went home that way. So it was kind of nice in that as long as you were responsible with your money, you know, the money you made down there, you, you could have some fun when you got out. And then you know you would sign on for another contract the following year. Mm -hmm. Is the salary good there? Since you're still dealing with isolation, being far away from family, do they give, do they compensate for that? I would say no. No, the, the money's okay, but the, the one advantage you have is that while you're there, all your your lodging and food is taken care of. So, oh, so you're just saving. You, you are. I mean, there's things to spend your money on down there, but nothing like, you know, back in the in the, in the United States, um, especially over the winter. If you did a winter over, you'd come off the ice with, with a decent chunk of change in your pocket. And some people would proceed to spend every dime of it. And then, you know, they'd be back the next season doing it all over again. I was very interested in saving my money that I had made down there as, as to kind of build a nest egg, which helped me greatly further down the line when I wanted to buy a house and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you brought up a very cool point. And it's actually interesting because I met you through language learning platform so it seems like you do have this traveling adventure side but it doesn't show off as much an introvert so it's kind of funny how you can also seek adventures but not socially you could just right. know you know right and for me at least the interest in traveling was was not so much a cultural thing as it was just seeing other landscapes like like other natural settings although I have enjoyed experiencing other cultures but for quite Quite a while when I would travel internationally, I would stick either to European at least or English speaking countries. So I, you know, I did New Zealand, Australia. I've been to Europe a couple times uh, at that point, but it wasn't until later where I was able to, to feel comfortable branching out and going to, to like Thailand and India. <laughs> that was quite an experience. It's like landing on another planet the first time, you know, you land in, in a place that's that different. So I, I de developed a taste, I guess, for the, the different cultural experiences, but I'm pretty introverted. And so I would be really reluctant to travel to a country that that's that foreign to me by myself. And when I, when I did go to those places, I traveled with somebody. What drew you to the cold and 
pretty much the isolation. Is it the fact that you went to Alaska? Like, did you feel like it prepared you somehow? Because if you really wanted to explore winter, you could come to Canada, which was more affordable, like coming from where you are in the States, you know, but yet yeah, you chose the South Pole. Well, well, as far as the cold goes, I, I mean, I'm a, I was a pretty avid skier at that time. So I, I guess I was kind of used to that environment. But I think at a deeper level, it was just thinking back to what, what I wanted when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, I kind of envisioned myself doing something like some kind of scientific field work. Of, of course, at that time, I think the fantasy was being an Egyptologist or something like that, an archaeologist. But, <laughs> you know, when I saw that email and I became fully aware of what was going on down in Antarctica, it was an epiphany that kind of spoke to that, to those childhood dreams. So as a result of that, I knew instantly when I saw it that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and, and it wasn't so much the, the cold or the environment necessarily it was the remoteness of it I think and the challenge of of going down there and doing a winter over which which is another thing I wanted to do like a lot of people would apply for those jobs for those winter over jobs and try to negotiate down to like oh well can I just go do it for like four months or five months you know? <laughs> and they're like no it's a winter over position you, you have to sign on for the whole year but that's what I wanted I especially after I researched it and, and read everything I did about the program and about the history down there there. I was quite sure that that I wanted to go and, and dive right in and do a winter over. And before that, what was the longest period of time that you spent alone, or at least with few people? Because it feels like, you know, when we, be, when, when we live in big cities, it's hard to really be fully alone. There's always noise around. Like you showed me the video of how uh, life was like there, and it was so interesting how you only have the horizon. There's no trees or anything. Yeah, the, the solitude I liked. I, you know, growing up, I did a lot of stuff on my own. I mean, I would go out and walk. I didn't grow up in the city. And so I spent a lot of time outside walking around quite a bit of that time alone, not always. Um, and, and maybe what I was reading at the time uh, maybe primed me to gravitate towards that kind of of lifestyle. I don't know. Were you looking for peace? I, I think I was looking for excitement. I, I just wanted to do something that I, th I thought was cool and interesting. And luckily, you know, I chanced upon something that scratched that itch. And and once I found that I, I kept doing it, like I said earlier, that was pretty much my career. I did 10 deployments to Antarctica in various jobs and um, one up to the North Slope of Alaska uh, with some years off in between. How come you were more attracted to the South Pole than the North Pole? Well, there's not really a research presence at the North Pole. The South Pole has that has a station that's been there since 1957. That's obviously evolved quite a bit since then. But um, again, it was just this, this attraction to doing science in the field in a remote place that drew me. And then, you know, once you get down there and, and you it really is getting back to your original analogy, it, it is somewhat analogous to, to going into space. Although obviously there's plenty of differences. Um, you're, you're in a lot less personal danger. But yeah, you get off the plane down there when the station opens in October and it's 60 or 70 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Um, I mean, that's nothing like like you've ever experienced before. And then when you get into the winter time and it gets even colder than that, it's definitely somewhat alien. So talking about danger, what's the biggest risk of going down there? Well, the, the medical capabilities down there are not anything near what they are back in the, you know, the civilized world. And um, especially at that time, th things have gotten better since. But, you know, if you if you had some kind of medical condition crop, say if you developed cancer while you're down there. 
during the winter, which has happened, you, you have to be medevaced. They can't deal with something like that down there. And so they, they actually have had to medevac a couple people in the middle of the winter uh, from there. And it got plenty of news coverage when it happened, although it's been several years, probably been 20, 15 years at least since something like that happened. But, so that's your biggest, I think your biggest concern is if you develop some medical condition uh, while you're there. It takes them a while to get to you, to get you out. And even then they may not be able to. How often do helicopters or plane come? At that time, uh, there was a lot going on because at, at the South Pole, at least, they were building a, a new station. And so, I let's see, I deployed for the first time down there in 1999. And then between that job and the, the subsequent job I had there, it was a total of six deployments ending in 2009. So about 10 years because the they were building a new station down there. There were tons of flights during the summer, like hundreds of C-130s that were flying and bringing construction materials and, and that kind of thing. And at the same time, there were a lot of big science projects going on, like the Ice Cube project, which I worked on. They built a very large microwave astronomical telescope and that that took a lot of resources and a lot of flights so things were very busy at the south pole when i was there during the summer and, but then during the winter the station closes around valentine's day and you don't see a fresh face until the following october mm -hmm. you're pretty much cut off it's like yeah like being on a space station that's what i was thinking when i was asking about what's the biggest danger like do people go insane do people get depressed Because yeah. do you have some psychological testing that you have to go through before yes. being sent there? So to yes. make sure that you don't implode? Yes. I, yes. Very good question. There, there is a physical exam that you have to undergo as well as a psychological exam if you're wintering over that you have to pass um, to be able to winter over. But, but even so, even with that in place, there, there can still be issues during the winter. Interesting. I mean, you know, once in a while there'll be a fight, which always fight. makes Yeah, I mean, it That's makes difficult the difficult because somebody got a little drunk and that added to the, the tension of whatever might be going on with the, with the crew that winter. But for the most part, it's pretty chill. Again, it, it very much depends on the chemistry of the, of the team that's wintering over and that changes from year to year. So I did two winter overs and the first one had a group of 50 people that were, I, I would say, largely incompatible with each other. How so? Just the nature of people's personality and how well suited they are to be in an environment like that where you're cut off uh, with no sunlight, uh, with nothing to eat but frozen food for that length of time. It, you know, it's just chemistry, you know, I mean, and so then the next time I wintered over was much better. The, it was in the same number of people, the same, same circumstances, but just the chemistry of that crew was, was much, much, much better. And we had a much more enjoyable winter as a result of that. So is it more common for people to do it once in a lifetime rather than coming back over and over like you did? At that time, it kind of was. It was uncommon to, to come back more than a couple times. But after that year, partly because they were building the new station and there was just a lot of work, there were, was a lot of opportunities and a lot of slots that had to be filled. There were people that started making it a very regular thing. And there's a handful of people that have went it over like more than 10 times now. But at the time, it was not only was it very unusual, 
but it was discouraged, especially doing consecutive winters. So there, there are people that will go down there and arrive kind of a little before station closing in like late January. They'll spend the winter. They'll get out the following October or early November. They'll kick out to New Zealand, maybe go back to the United States for a while and then come back down the following January to do another winter. That's happened a lot over the past 15 or 20 years, but around the year 2000, around that time when I was doing it, it was very unusual. So if you said that they also supply you with lodging and food, what about clothing and equipment, gloves, hats? Yeah. yeah. So there's a, there's a, a large clothing warehouse in Christchurch, New Zealand, where the, the U.S. Antarctic program is based out of. And so you on your way down every year, you go through Christchurch, you get outfitted with all the gear that you'll need. There's, like I said, there's a huge array of, of stuff to choose from. And after you've been down a few times, you get a good idea of what works for you. And the, the, the folks that work at the distribution center know you, they get to know who you are and know what you want. And so a lot of times after you've done it a few times, you'll get down there and everything will be, your bag will basically be packed for you. I've never wanted for anything down there in terms of uh, gear. But what I mean is, Did that come out of your pocket or was it no. financed? Because then what do you do after that? When you go back to the real world, you don't really need those coats anymore. Like they must be really puffy and... Well, you drop them back off. So so you, you go through Christchurch on the way down, you do your contract down there, however long it is. And then on, on your way back out, you pass back through this processing center where you hand all your gear back in. Do you get used gear to begin with? Yes. Okay, nice. I mean, I mean some of it might be new, you know, depending on, because it wears out. And so they have to buy new stuff occasionally. And so once in a while, you'll get a new item of gear by chance. Uh, although the, the used stuff tends to be better because it's broken in as long as it's not, it's not too worn out. Yeah. How about you tell us more about hygiene and showering? <laughs> so at the South Pole, the way they get water is by melting ice. And back in the old days, they actually had to scoop snow into a snow melter. Uh, that made water a very precious resource. Things got better with time as they developed better technology for extracting water. So, so what they do now is they drill a hole pretty deep down into the ice. The ice cap down there is a mile and a half thick. So there's plenty of water there. You just got to liquefy it. And um, what they do now is they drill a hole down into the ice and they put a pump down there and they basically trickle hot water down the hole. And eventually it will form this huge bulb under the ice full of water and that's your water supply. And when they've exhausted it, when they can't lower the, the pump down any further, they fill it up with sewage. So there's this constant dance going on between extracting water from one bulb and routing the effluent from the station down into an older bulb that's been uh, exhausted. So, so not the best um, environmental stewardship. They're, they're very conscious about recycling and making sure that none of the uh, waste products of the station other, other than than human waste remains down there. Everything gets shipped back out other than human waste. That's wonderful. It, this this all kind of falls out of the Antarctic Treaty, which is a, a document that's, I'm pretty sure, is legally binding to the signatory countries that states Antarctica will be as pristine and undeveloped as possible for science for a specified amount of time. Every so many years, the treaty has to be re-ratified uh, by the, the countries that have signed on to it. And so far it has re-ratified every time. But how do they police this? Because it does not really have a, an owner? Right. So, so there are 
countries that make territorial claims in Antarctica, but under the treaty as it stands, all those claims are suspended. Um, they're not recognized. But were the treaty to one day not be re-ratified for whatever reason, it, it would open up the continent to enforcement of territorial claims to resource extraction, you know, mining, drilling, whatever. And as far as enforcement of the treaty goes, I don't know the exact mechanism by which, you know, somebody might be uh, punished for not adhering to it. But, you know, as say, as an American, you, you can't just go down there on your own and do whatever you want. You're bound by the laws of the treaty, you know, which the United States has signed. And, and if you did go down there and say, I don't know, you wanted to set up a, a hotel or something on your own, you would not be able to do it without going to the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Although you could move to the territory that was not claimed by the U.S. and as a human being, just do that. Not as an American, I mean, but just well, as a human being, just settle there. I, as far as I know, <laughs> you're bound by the by what's in the treaty. And so whatever you do, you can face consequences under U.S. law, no matter where you do it. The United States doesn't have any territorial claims in Antarctica, and they don't recognize any of the claims of other countries. And I guess neither does the treaty. So all the countries that have claims, I'm pretty sure are signatories of the treaty. And so they, they abide by it for the time being. Who knows what the future will hold. So knowing that you're not technically in U.S. territory, do you feel freer? You know more into the world. Yeah. The, the interesting thing, this kind of is analogous to like when you go live in a foreign country, except in this case, you know, you're still living on an American station among a bunch of other Americans. So you're not that immersed in another culture. However, that separation from the world at large definitely changes your perspective of things uh, a certain amount because you get some distance from, you know, this constant, when you're back in society, you know, there's this constant bath of, of information that you're swimming in, you're being bombarded by advertisements and, you know, propaganda from wherever. And you go down there and you're, you're largely cut off from it, especially back then. You know, we had, we had limited internet access through satellites. We got news and you're largely separated from that immersive informational environment. But even consumerism, like you're not as teased yep. about buying the new technology because you live <laughs> yeah. in a moment. Like you just yeah, you, can't. And also like like you were saying, like you don't have it in your face. So I think it would yes. cause a lot of, you know, chasing for material uh, stuff that in essence, we don't really need. Exactly. And, and down there, you can't have it. I mean, during the summer, you could potentially, you know, order something uh, and have it shipped down there. But that that kind of cargo was like the lowest of the low in terms of priority, you know, because the logistical chain was solely devoted to moving equipment and supplies. And so things like, I don't know, if you ordered a book to have shipped down there, you, you might not get it before the station closed. And then when you're there during the winter, you're completely cut off in terms of any kind of uh, material acquisition. So yeah. And you're down there with a small group of people in a fairly hostile natural environment. And that tends to make one focus more on the immediate relationships you have with people around you, maybe to a higher degree than, than what's normal in the modern world. So yeah, there, there's kind of a familial feeling that develops among the crew down there, or at least among the group of people, you know, within the crew that you hang out with. The things that, that you may have prioritized when you're living in the modern world tend to get deprioritized 
socialized in that environment. And so there's a bit of culture shock when you come back out and you've kind of been out of touch with all the latest things that have been happening. It's kind of interesting to come out and, you know, kind of see how things have changed in, in your absence. The, the one other nice thing about uh, coming out of there, especially after you've done a, a year long stint is, is you don't go straight back to the United States. You go to New Zealand, which is a much more laid back environment than the U.S. is. And it's, it's kind of a nice decompression chamber, uh, so to speak. But so do you go with a visa to New Zealand so you can chill a little bit there? Do yes. you take some time off? Yes. So you basically are traveling through New Zealand as on a tourist visa. Although New Zealand doesn't require a visa or it didn't then. They they clear you to go through Christchurch and you know head down to the ice. And then when you come out, typically you'd, you'd get a, a tourist stamp that was good for three months in New Zealand. I think it's longer now. It may be as long as nine months. Now. Well, not now, obviously, but before COVID, people would take advantage of that. I, I stayed in New Zealand the full three months, my second time coming off the ice and enjoyed it immensely. What kind of entertainment do you have down there? So you said you could order books, but it might not come. Is there any um, arrangement for a TV for some movies? Yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of um, video players and there's a pretty good, there's a library. Every station has a library. There's a library of books and DVDs. So yeah, the entertainment options aren't, aren't unlimited. They're decent. A big thing, I mean, and it depends on who's down there. I mean, my second winter down there, spent a lot of time brewing beer, doing hobby type things. But, but I guess the main thing is just sitting around talking. Conversation got to be a much more important thing in that environment than it would say back here. And so, yeah, it was pretty interesting what could develop um, in terms of what people would tolerate in terms of conversing. Like, kind of an art of conversation developed, I, I felt, because that was the main thing that you did. And so, yeah. You, you, you had to you had to conduct your well, yourself well conversationally. You had to tell a story. You couldn't go off on a tangent. You know, things had to be presented well. There was a higher bar for conversational aptitude that developed, I think. So it's funny that you're saying this because uh, Americans have that stereotype that, you know, they develop shallow relationships, that they're usually, you know, oh, hey, honey, everything's amazing. But deep inside, like deep down, they don't really have real conversation and here you are forced to confront that you don't have a choice but to get authentic and there's no place for being shallow and bragging and showing attitude you know like it, it has to be somewhat genuine so it, do you feel like this experience has also changed how you view your relationships back in the states Probably. Me personally, I was never that type of person beforehand of, of the shallow conversation, the small talk. I mean, that wasn't my thing even before I went down there. So as far as how much I changed, I, I don't know how to quantify that. I did. But you're right. Uh, you know, there's there's people down there's all types of people down there. Uh, so I'm sure people, you know, went through the whole deployment just being who, who they were beforehand and came out unchanged. That evolution of conversational ability I described earlier, I mean, didn't happen in everyone. But in general, it, it, it kind of had to because that's, at least in those days, that was your main source of, um, if, if not entertainment, at least social interaction. Did you keep in touch with those people that you spend the winter with? Because it binds you for life. Yeah. 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 Depending on the, the chemistry of the crew in any given year. I mean, there's people from my first winter, which I, I feel was a largely dysfunctional crew, but there's people from that year that I'll be friends with for life. And, and even the ones that I wasn't friends with, if they showed up in my town and needed a place to stay, 
I would give it to them, even the ones that I didn't, didn't particularly like. Going through hardship like that binds people in a way that I guess normal life doesn't necessarily do. It's kind of like when you're in college, you know, the friendships you form in college or say in the army or, or yeah, some situation, yeah, situation where there's a, a certain degree of hardship involved. Those friendships are going to be much more profound and long lasting than, than ones you might make working in an office. Oh, for sure. Do you think that before going, there's a romanticized camaraderie that people were expecting since you're locked down together and it has to be you're my brother i'll die for you i, I don't know speaking for myself I, i actually did not necessarily anticipate that I, i was thinking more about the job and then the natural environment okay okay so before you go down i don't know if they do this anymore but before you go down you have what what's called a, a team building exercise where they at the time they would contract with a like a high ropes course in colorado somewhere and the, everybody who had already signed on for the winter would Would show would show up for this ideally and um you'd spend like a long weekend together not just getting to know each other but doing activities you know you know how team building things go and that was a good thing because at the very least if anybody was kind of on the fence about whether or not they wanted to do it they would have the chance of sussing out the other people that they were going down with and let that feed into their decision and um So getting back to your question, I didn't really anticipate what the nature of the interpersonal relationships was going to be and how they might evolve. But doing that team building exercise ahead of time kind of, at the very least, gave me an idea of how it was going to be when we got down there. And I remember my second winter, I was pretty sure I wanted to do another one, but I remember thinking, well, I'm going to go to the, the team building thing and kind of check things out. And if the crew looks like it's going to be a repeat of my first winter, I'm not going to do it again. So can you tell from one weekend how it's going to be like for the whole winter? Well, no, but you certainly it's better than nothing. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> and and so that that second one, I felt really good about the people that were going to be on the crew. I knew some of them uh, from other encounters I had, you know, during the summer down there previously. And I was pretty psyched when I met those people and, and you don't meet everybody right because they haven't hired everybody yet for the winter a lot of times they're hiring people right up to the last minute before station closes and so you know you don't 100% know what it's going to be like people wise but it gives you a good indication so talking about people how's the dating happening if you're going down there or do people coupled up yeah if you're a heterosexual male you better be prepared to be celibate um for the winter because it's just the odds just aren't against you and and so yeah people pair up during the summer and and generally they they stay coupled at least through the winter which is a good thing i think because it kind of provides some some stability socially for everybody knowing that okay this person's with this person and so on and they're probably going to be together the whole winter and so everybody knows what to expect or and becomes awkward when you break up because you're still stuck together yeah and and that has happened i, I had a couple of friends who were a couple and they were they knew that things probably weren't going to work out for the long term but they stayed together for the rest of the winter just to keep company <laughs> that and just to not have uh have the social situation become too perturbed what kind of animals do you have in the antarctic uh they're they're mostly marine animals or marine related animals and they're only on the coasts like when you get into the interior especially up on the antarctic plateau where the ice sheets you know 9,000 feet thick there's pretty much nothing living up there uh, especially 
in terms of uh, macro biota. There's a few microbes that live in the ice up there, but that's about it. Further down, we drilled through the Ross ice shelf in two different places on two different occasions and found life both times. One time was a long ways from the ocean. Like I think we were drilling into the grounding line where the ice shelf kind of meets the land about 600 miles from the open ocean and there were fish down there other things so yeah but by and large i mean everything's based on the ocean down there um, from an ecological perspective yeah that's very nice my curiosity has been satisfied it was like question number one on my sheet actually <laughs> but how about your actual project your actual work how about you tell us more about it and did it impact climate change so my first two deployments down there were kind of a, the job itself was a grab bag of different little science projects and instruments that needed to be uh, maintained over the course of the winter. The, the bigger projects would have dedicated people wintering over with them. But my job was kind of keeping tabs on all these smaller projects that didn't merit a dedicated crew or, or a dedicated person. And so some of those projects were um, looking at, well, one was looking at the ozone layer, looking at UV flux through the atmosphere to the surface. And there were a lot of sky imaging, digital cameras. And then later on, uh, I transitioned into, into other jobs that were summer only. And those projects tended to be more focused on geology. South Pole is a big place for astronomy and atmospheric science. And NOAA, NOAA, has a station at the South Pole that monitors climate and the atmosphere. But overall, the, the geology goes on elsewhere. The, the rocks are so far underneath the ice at the South Pole that it's not, not really a, a good place for geological investigation. So I did a project starting in about 2009. I got hired by the University of Nebraska here by a project that was looking at paleoclimatology by drilling sediment cores off the seafloor underneath the Ross ice shelf, which is a prominent feature in Antarctica. And so what these guys had done was they had built a, a special drill that could melt a hole through the Ross ice shelf. And then subsequently there was a more traditional like oil drilling type of rig that would drill with an auger into the seafloor and put, you know, pipe casings down. And they were able to, to extract some very long sediment cores. Uh, I can't remember how far back in time uh, they were able to look, but you know, if you get the right right crew of scientists with the right um, specializations, you can look at those the layers and those cores and look at what comprises those layers, like the diatom shells and basically microbiota that are in those layers. And you can get a, a record of the local climate over time. And so this particular project, which was called Andril, was very much focused on trying to construct the climatological history of Antarctica because they want to see, oh, and so there are, are proxies in these samples and these cores that can tell you how much, for instance, how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere at this time. It has something to do with preferential incorporation of, of carbon into cer certain microbiota into their shells. And they can look at these isotope ratios and tell you to some degree what the CO2 levels in the atmosphere were over time. So what they want to do was look at the CO2 levels over time and see how they compare to the present day and what's projected for 
our future and get an idea of the stability of the ice down in Antarctica. So like at, at what CO2 levels are you going to see the ice sheets melt potentially? Because that's going to have very direct uh, consequences for human civilization going forward. And so that, that project was very much focused on that. And then a subsequent project, which was further inland, uh, where we drilled into a subglacial lake. The idea there was, was similar to, to get an idea of, you know, what percentage of the past was that area covered by ice and how much of it was open ocean. And, and so all these projects are kind of trying to piece together this puzzle of how has the Antarctic ice sheet behaved over time in the past with respect to CO2 levels in the atmosphere. Where did your data and your results go? Did it get published or did it go directly into the government so they can make decisions? What was the so, so the way the way science works down there um, is that it, it's it's kind of the same throughout the United States in terms of you know the grant process and then how things happen once the grant has been awarded. And so what you would have is these projects would have a principal investigator, a PI, and then depending on the size and scope of the project, it might have a lot of co-PIs and it might have an international collaborative aspect to it, which this project did. And not much data is collected um, on site. Typically what they do is they're taking samples, they're sending the samples back to the United States to be analyzed you know, in a lab and they, they publish papers based on that analysis. Uh, so it's, it's university centric. So like the PI for when we drilled into Lake Willens, the, the PI was a guy named John Priskew out of Montana State who, well, well, actually there were three co-PIs. They took their samples, they took them back to their respective universities, did the analysis. And, you know, then in tandem with a lot of their grad students, you know, their PhD candidates and associated staff, they would publish papers. And as for the samples themselves, I'm not sure what... I think they stay at their respective universities, but when ice cores get drilled, which are another climate proxy, that's like all other can of worms, but th there is like a national repository for ice cores. Uh, that's, I think it used to be in Tallahassee, Florida, ironically enough, but it might be in Colorado now. So in answer to your question, you know, depending on the nature of what's being investigated, you know, like if there's a lot of samples coming back that have to be curated on a large scale, like these ice cores, that tends to be done at more of a governmental level. Uh, you know, smaller stuff like these samples from Lake Willens are, I, I think, just curated at the universities of the associated scientists. So since you went there for the first time about 20 years ago until the last time, did you think that the changes were visible to the naked eye to the point where climate change is definitely happening at a very fast rate? Antarctica is just so big and it has so much ice that I, I think there's a certain degree of inertia to, to change there. However, at least on the human scale. So in answer to your question, no, it's not something I necessarily noticed changing. H however, you know, the West Antarctic ice sheet, there, there's a lot of evidence indicating that it's pretty fragile, relatively speaking, and has collapsed and reformed many, many times over the past few million years, if not longer. That was kind of one of the investigative thrusts of, of the Willens project and subsequent projects. 
that went down to this area down in uh, on the Sipel coast was was trying to get a handle on how that West Antarctic ice sheet changes over time. And and currently there's a there's a project incorporated into the West Antarctic ice sheet. There's a couple of very large glaciers that have been found through satellite data and, and other stuff to be accelerating in terms of their flow. And one of them is called the Thwaites Glacier. It's been in the news quite a bit in the Pine Island Glacier, which I think is right next to it. There's currently a lot of work going on to try to characterize what's going on with those glaciers because it's felt that they're kind of like a, a, a keystone to the rest of the West Antarctic ice sheet. And if those glaciers collapse, it could signal the start of the entire ice sheet collapsing. So there's there's some work going on, or there was this past summer season, even with, with the COVID lockdowns to try and... Uh, to try and characterize the Thwaites Glacier, I think. Mm -hmm. And what we see on the media and on TV, you know, that glaciers always falling down, melting, polar bears, you know, not getting enough ice to even walk around. Do you feel like it would be an accurate representation of what you saw? You know, I was, I was in the Arctic for a year when I was up in Alaska. And although I was only there for a year, I heard plenty of the, the locals talk about how things had been changing. With, with less ice on the Arctic Ocean, It allows for the storms to kick up bigger waves. So they, like on the north slope of Alaska, they've they've certainly been seeing a higher rate of erosion due to that, among other things. So, and I mean, this is pretty common knowledge news-wise that, that the, the Arctic is very sensitive to climate change. And we're seeing that on human timescales right now. Yeah. As a geologist, how worried are you right now? We have so many problems going on that it's hard to know what to worry about. I think climate change is definitely a threat to human civilization. I don't think it's a threat to humanity, to the human species as much. I think humanity will be able to adapt to, to whatever happens and survive. But human civilization is, a, is another question entirely. I certainly am concerned about the long-term prospects of, of our civilization. Although, I, like I said, we have a plenty of other problems that I think are more short-term uh, that are going to probably distract us, but that need to be addressed. So I, in answer to your question, I, I'm not sure uh, how concerned I am uh, about climate change. It's certainly a problem that's going to have to be addressed at some point. But Yeah. So I thought because it was part of your job, you know, like you see it in your face, whether than if you're a virologist, I guess that you see it in your face as well. But although those are two different problems, it doesn't mean that one gets priority over the other. I feel like climate change, it's like slow, but it will happen uh, that we need to adapt. And it might not be, I don't know, it might just be like, let's go to Mars and let's abandon Earth. Like, No, <laughs> no. I, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. I, I think climate change, because it's a slow moving and very uh, inertial process, the longer we wait to address it, the more problematic it's going to be to do anything about it. It's one of those things where I think once it gets going and it's going, but the longer we let we let that ball roll, the, the bigger and heavier it's going to be and the harder it's going to be to stop. So certainly, yeah, with long-term problems, we need to be doing something at least to begin addressing it now. And I obviously, I don't think we're doing enough. It, it's, yeah, it's just a question of what resources are we willing to devote to it and how do the, the use of those resources stack up against other more immediate problems we're dealing with. It's definitely not something I would want to be trying to deal with as, as a government, as a leader. Are there any habits that you've changed or any routine that you've implemented within your family, with your daughter, in terms of her education, 
but also, you know, working at a university, you see how students behave, you see the next generation, those are going to be able to take over and maybe have more equipment than we did have back in our time. I'm talking like I'm super old, but, <laughs> you know, like even it has evolved a lot since I left school. And I feel like since you're in the middle of the new generation growing and learning, then how do you think that education could change that in people's mentality? First of all, I, I think the more immediate issue is equipping people who are coming out of our education system right now, equipping them to, to think critically. And, you know, from what I see here in this environment, which is somewhat insulated from the wider world, that's happening. But university students are only a certain fraction of the overall population. And I honestly think that simply equipping university students to think critically is not going to be enough. So speaking of education, I think, I think the inculcation of critical thinking skills needs to happen at an earlier stage, and it needs to have a higher priority placed on it. So in regards to your question about my own daughter and, and how I see her coming along, I, I personally am going to do everything I can to avail her of critical thinking on a broader scale. I mean, I think her particular school is, is doing a fairly good job of that. I mean, she's only six, so we have a ways to go. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely, especially right now and, and what I'm seeing in the news and, and granted, I, I'm not out on the ground interviewing people and taking surveys and everything, but it certainly seems like there's a crisis of being able to think critically, at least in the United States right now. Without getting too political and controversial, I just think they need to guard their skepticism and um, apply it judiciously. Mm -hmm. And I, that, that doesn't seem like that's happening right now. Yeah, but even something as simple as picking up trash, because moving from France to the US, I was really shocked at how people littered just for fun and not even knowing what the consequences are for the environment. Because You know, I was like driving one time, it was somewhere in the Midwest and somebody just opened their car window and threw out a McDonald's bag, like full of trash. And so I used to go on hikes with plastic bags just to pick up trash. And the most common things that I picked up were bottles of pee that people threw out and diapers. One thing I will say, and I, I guess this stems from my more advanced ages, things have gotten a lot better in that regard. They're still not great. But when I was a kid in the 70s, I mean, litter was everywhere. I mean, it was a, a real problem. And now, depending on where you go, it seems to me that that, that particular issue has gotten a lot better. I mean, the litter is still going into the environment. It's just more sequestered, less spread out. The problem of plastics in my mind is, is probably going to loom larger than climate change in the short term. I, I think there are going to be dire health consequences from the way we use plastic that are only now just starting to be discovered. And I have a feeling that in the nearer term, more, more near term than the climate change issue is going to be the issue of plastic waste you know, the ways that it's impacting the environment, like fisheries, groundwater contamination, plastic molecules, mimicking hormones, and then people are drinking it. And all these things, I think, are going to be a more shorter term problem. Yeah, I heard that now you can find microplastics in women's placenta when they're yeah. pregnant. That's pretty alarming. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how we deal with that, if, if it can even be dealt with. I mean, even if we stopped all plastic production now, you know, there's so much already in the environment. The natural environment is going to have to evolve some way of dealing with it, no matter what. 
I think if we're lucky, you know, some microbe will evolve that can eat plastic, that can utilize the, the energy stored in plastic for itself. Like I saw a few years ago that they found some archaea that were able to thrive in arsenic. And I'm like, I'm sure there's going to be something that's going to thrive in plastic. So, so the bigger question is, is can, should, should we as a civilization speed up that process of microbes evolving to take advantage of that resource? or Because if it happens naturally, it's going to take thousands of years. I feel like we don't have that kind of time to deal with that particular problem. It's very, very true. Well, this was super interesting for the whole time. I was really, really amazed at your experience. And thank you again for uh, your time here. I would like to see you again anytime. Or something. Oh, yeah. If you want to give a last piece of advice, go ahead. Sure, yeah. In terms of personal advice, which I, I try not to give too much of because everybody's situation is different, but, and I didn't even realize this until I got much older, but don't let go of your childhood dreams. I, the, the fantasies or the, the ideas that you have as a kid, and I'm talking like seven, eight, nine years old, 10, you know, as you get older, I think you tend to let go of those ideas because you see them as childish or naive or just not, not realistically attainable. But I would say to not do that, to kind of keep in touch with those because they'll inform your life choices later, at least in terms of what you do for work. And I think if you can find work that satisfies those childhood dreams as closely as possible, I think you'll you'll find that your work life will be more satisfying. That was the case for me, at least. Do you think that going to Antarctica replaced being an archaeologist in Egypt, or do you think it still needs to be accomplished within your lifetime? Well, so I guess I should qualify what I said, but <laughs> maybe maybe don't literally don't hang on to your childhood dreams literally. My aspirations as a kid were generally pretty specific, but the things that I, that, that spoke to me, like the opportunities that I came across that really jumped out at me were things that were along the lines of what I imagined myself doing as a kid. So I, I can only speak for myself. Who knows what other kids, you know, imagine themselves doing. Like if you want to be an astronaut, maybe you're not going to be an astronaut, but you know, I saw myself as a scientist too, you know, when I was a kid and I wound up not being a scientist, but I wound up being involved in scientific projects that, and it kind of fulfilled or at least partially fulfilled those, those aspirations. So I guess that's my advice is just don't give up mm -hmm. on your childhood dreams if you can help it. What if your childhood dream is to become a dictator? <laughs> or a serial killer. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, you should definitely give that up. There are going to be special cases, uh, obviously. <laughs> yep. All right. Thank you, Darren, for your time. Yeah, it's good talking soon. to you. Okay, bye. Yep. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Education Monsters. I hope you liked it. If you'd like to take a French lesson with me, don't hesitate to go on the Education Monsters website to book a class. I'll be super happy to get to know you and we can practice languages together. Don't forget to subscribe to the website and you'll get a notification when a new blog article comes out. Last but not least, please, please, please consider making a donation to my Patreon account. This education project means so much to me and I'll greatly appreciate it if I can have your support. Thanks again and I'll see you for the next episode on Thursday.